Well, hey everyone, we're gonna be wrapping up our series, Jesus at the Center today. And so I wanna encourage you, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're gonna revisit a passage that we ended with last week. Uh, and then we'll also be looking at a passage out of Matthew chapter six. So Romans 12, and Matthew six, uh, and then also John 10, John chapter 10. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn to those passages. The verses will also be uh, on the screen. Uh, and they're also available in the online church platform uh, if you go to the notes section. So those are there so you can reference them. So we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, the fact that Jesus needs to be at the center of who we are, that he needs to be at the center of our lives, that he needs to be the one who is our Lord, that who is in control. He is the foundation of everything that we are and, and how we live as believers. And there's really no substitute. We can't, it can't be Jesus and it is just about Jesus. It's about making him the center part of who we are. And so as we wrap up the series today, I've entitled today's message, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. When I was a kid, and you probably did the same thing when you were a kid, on the playground, preschool and first grade, uh, we used to play a game called Follow the Leader. One kid was picked to be it, and everyone else would line up behind them and would follow them all around the playground. And they would climb over the seesaw and crawl through the sand pit and jump over the swings and hop like a rabbit and whatever. They, they would do all kinds of crazy things. And their goal was to get uh, everyone to follow them, but then also to trip them up so that kids wouldn't be able to do the thing that the leader was doing. And one by one, kids would be eliminated with the last one standing being the winner. We learned early on, even on the playground at school, that following is difficult, that following is hard, that, that having someone else dictate how you live and what you do is not something that comes naturally for us. In fact, we're born into a, a, a sinful world with a sinful nature that resists those things, that the sinful nature that we're born with is resistant to being told what to do. And we know this is true because we see it in every two-year-old that learns the word no. They don't have to be taught. They just know. You used to be there when you were two years old. And if you've raised children, you know this to be true. When kids start discovering that they have a will, that they can assert themselves and that they can say, no, I don't want to do that. Well, they just go for it. I don't want to eat my broccoli. I don't want to go to bed. And so there's all of these meltdowns that happens in houses and all over around the world and cultures all around the world as kids come into that stage where they figure out, I don't want to do what I'm told to do. I want to do what I want to do. Following is difficult. Being told what to do is difficult. There's inside of every one of us, there's that part of us that doesn't want to be told what to do. We think we know best. Now, thankfully, we grow out of our twos and out of the tantrum stage, and we learn to guise it a little bit better. But I think that part of us that we discover when, when we're two years old goes with us. It goes with us into adulthood. It goes with us as we go through our school years and into our college years, as we get our first jobs, as we learn what it means to function in the world within the, the boundaries and within the structures and with the authorities that are placed over us, that we have to 
listen. We have to walk in obedience to those things. Uh, and when we don't, we recognize that things generally don't go well. But man, there's that part of us, right? There's that part of us that just resists. We don't like being told what to do. And here's the thing. We bring it into our relationship with God. We bring that sin nature, we bring that resistance into our relationship with Jesus. Now, thank God he saves us and he redeems us and he forgives our sins and that we are made as a new creation. But the Bible says that we work out our faith, that we work out those parts of us that are resistant. And if you've walked with Jesus for a day or a decade, it doesn't matter. You recognize that it is a fight. It is a fight to make sure that you live in submission and surrender to the will of Jesus, to the authority and to the leadership of Jesus. And there's days for all of us where, we, where it goes a lot better, where we're going, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you with everything that I am. And there are days that we all have where we go, you know what, I just want to do what I want to do. And that sin nature that is at war within us tries to rear up and get, off us, get us off track to, to distract us from the very best that God has for us. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 about worship, what it means to worship him. And again, we, we looked at this passage at the end of last week's message, and I wanted to use it as a jumping off point for us today. And this is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. He says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's a few things that we need to unpack and, and look at a little more closely in this passage. Of, Paul, of course, Paul writes to these dear brothers and sisters, and he says, hey, in view of God's mercy, Jesus has done amazing things for you, that God has been merciful to you, that you have not received the just rewards of your sin. You've not received the penalty of your sinful nature. What you've received instead is the sacrifice that Jesus made that led to your salvation and your redemption and your forgiveness and is bringing about a transformation in your life. In fact, later on or before this in Romans chapter 8, he talked about how we are being conformed to the image of Jesus, that this process is ongoing in our lives. So Paul says to them, in view of this, in view of God's mercy, the incredible work that he's done for you, that we would then offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, that we would offer every part of who we are. When Paul says here bodies, he's not just talking about our flesh. He's talking about our being. He's talking about everything that we are, our whole person, that we would bring ourselves to God and say, God, here I am. And we would bring our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. See, Paul's using some vivid imagery because for, for those living during that time, they would have understand what sacrifice was. 
that, that the sacrificial system was something familiar to them. And so uh, when he says to bring sacrifice, it's a vivid picture of laying something on the altar, putting something to death and offering it before the Lord. That sacrifice was not easy. In fact, that's why the word sacrifice, when we talk about giving something up, we talk about sacrificing something, that it costs us something. It was David who was, who was offered a bull to, to uh, sacrifice to the Lord, and, and, and the man that wanted to give it to him said, I'll, I'll just give it. You don't have to pay me. And, God, and David says, I don't want to sacrifice that which costs me nothing. That sacrifice comes with great cost. And so Paul's saying here, when we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, that there's a cost. Something has to be given up. But when we do that, there's something holy and pleasing. When we offer our lives, everything that we are, every part of who we are, our, our actions, our emotions, our will, our relationships, our possessions, all of these things, we offer them to God as a holy sacrifice, a living sacrifice. He says that it is holy and pleasing, that God looks at it, and he says that this, this act is set apart. That's what holy is. It is set apart. It's special, and God is pleased with it, and Paul says this is your true and proper worship. This is how we honor God. This is how we declare how awesome and how worthy he is, by giving our very lives. He goes on to say, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Learn to think a different way. Learn to think the way that God has called you to, and not just the way the world says, to act the way that God calls you to live a new, in a new paradigm, in a new system of living. And he wraps it up by saying, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And this word will is really key for us here, because when it comes to following, when it comes to denying myself and picking up my cross and following Jesus, what has to die in me is my own will. Denying myself means that my will, what I want, takes a back seat, is eliminated, and what becomes primary is what God's will is, what God's desires are, what he is looking for. And so here's this picture of sacrifice, the, the, the lack of, uh, of, of conforming to the world, and the ability to discern what God's will is. If we reverse that a little bit, I believe that one of the challenges that's inherent with us being able to follow God fully about putting Jesus at the center and, and declaring Jesus is my Lord is that we fail to offer our lives as a sacrifice and that we struggle with conforming to the pattern of this world. And then when it comes to the will, I do what I want to do, not what God's calling me to do. And there's this tension, and Paul even writes about it further again in the book of Romans. And it's a, it's a great letter to read. Uh, Romans is just so powerful and so full of just great pictures and great, great uh, understanding on how we would live our Christian lives. So this issue of lordship, Jesus is my Lord. 
We say that. We say Jesus is Lord. We say praise the Lord. We use the word Lord in our worship songs and in our conversations. And, and, and it just kind of rolls off of our lips. And there's, you know, we would say Jesus is Lord. And if we were in the same room together, I imagine there would be amens and hallelujahs that would erupt. Jesus is Lord. And we would go amen. But I think we often miss the weightiness and the significance of what this word Lord means. What does it mean for Jesus to be my Lord? What does it mean for him to be your Lord? It's a word that's not really used outside of uh, Christian uh, and religious circles uh, in the context that we live in today. Uh, it's really an, an old word, if you will. And, and what happens is with old words is they lose their significance. They lose it, as I said, that, that weightiness. When we look at the, the word Lord and the name Lord really is what it is in Scripture, what we discover in going back to the Old Testament, that the name for God is Yahweh. He is Yahweh. And, and that really comes from uh, where Moses had the encounter with, with God in the desert, and he said, who, who are you? And he said, I am that I am. He said, I am, that he is, he is the be all, he is the end all, he is the one who has absolute authority, he is the one that is fully in control. And so for the Israelites, they changed his name Yahweh out of reverence, and, and he was known as Jehovah, and we would even call him that today, Jehovah, and we would attach different titles and names to Jehovah, Jehovah, Jireh, my provider, and, uh, you know, and we, we, we worship him with those names. But even further than that, there was a, a term of reverence, and for so many of the, the Israelites, that they wouldn't say the name of God out loud, out of fear and out of reverence for him. And so uh, they wouldn't use Yahweh or even Jehovah as much as they would use the name Adonai. Adonai. The word Adonai comes from the root Adon. Adon. And it's the Hebrew word for uh, one who has absolute control. The one who has absolute control is Adon. And so we worship and we serve Adonai, the one who is absolutely in control, who oversees all things. And it's out of this word, actually out of these three names, Yahweh, Jehovah, and Adonai, that we derive the word Lord, that we get that word Lord and that name Lord. See, Jesus has absolute authority. He is Adonai. He has absolute authority over all creation. In fact, if you remember the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and Pharaoh's resistance to letting them go, he said, I'm not going to do what God tells me to do. I'm going to do my own thing. And so God demonstrates his absolute authority and his absolute control over creation by bringing the plagues. That those plagues that we learned about in Sunday school, those plagues that we learned about with Charlton Heston in the, the movie The Ten Commandments, those, those plagues that, that we're so familiar with were an expression of God saying, I am Adonai. I am the one who is in control over even creation, that all of creation submits to me, that it bows to me. 
The signs and the wonders and the miracles of Jesus were, were part of that as well. And we see Jesus doing things that no normal person, no human mortal person could do. But as Jesus performed signs and wonders and miracles and as he ministered in power, he was declaring his lordship, that he was and is Adonai, that he is the God that is in control, who has absolute authority, that all human authority, that all, all systems and all structures of authority that exist in the world are under his authority, that he is ultimately in control. Whether that was Pharaoh of old, whether that was kings and rulers that have existed throughout history, or whether it is today in our present uh, political structures here in our nation and around the world, that ultimately God is in control, that he is master, that he is the ruler of all things, that he is the possessor of all things, that, that he owns all of these things. And in England, the Lord of a region would have been the one who owned all of the lands and the Lord possessed the lands and then he would hire people, farmers and, and, and shepherds to tend to the land. But the, ultimately it was the Lord that was the one who owned. See, the Lord, Jesus as Lord is the one who owns all things. All of creation is under his authority and is his rightful possession. And it is through Jesus as Lord that we are saved. It's, it's when we declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 10. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Why with your mouth? Why, does, why do words have to come out? Because it is an act of the will. It is a surrender of the will. When my body, when my brain says, formulate these words, and those words come, the air is expressed out of my lungs, and my vocal cords vibrate to form those words, and the words, Jesus is Lord, comes out of my mouth. There is an act of will that I am surrendering my will to say, Jesus is Lord. He is my Lord. And then he says, you believe in your heart that there is this deeply rooted belief that Jesus, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Those two things, the expression, saying it out loud, and the belief in the heart, that is how we're saved. That's what, what the Bible declares, what Paul writes here in Romans 10. This is how we are saved. And so the lordship of Jesus, the expression of the lordship of Jesus and the surrender of my will to his lordship is what brings about salvation. It's what brings me into the family of God. And that is how I am saved. And to that I say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. See, Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is my Lord. But here's the thing, church. He can't be partly Lord. That Jesus can't be partly Lord. So when we talk about Jesus at the center, we have to remember that Jesus can't be partly my Lord. He can't be partly Lord. It's not possible. Matthew chapter 6, this is what Jesus says about Lordship. He says this, no one can serve two masters. 
No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I think so often we hear this passage and we hear the money part, and then we make it all about the money. And it's not about the money. Jesus's point here is not about the money. In fact, that exposes, doesn't it, for us? Maybe you're even realizing that right now, that that becomes the focal point. It exposes part of our propensity to be in control. Don't mess with my money, God. Don't mess with my money. You can, you can deal with other things in my life. And that's such a big challenge for us, isn't it? In our walk with the Lord. Well, God, this is my money, and I'll give you a little bit of my money. I'll... I'll I'll tithe or I'll give an offering or I'll be generous, but really it's my money. But it's not about the money. It's not about the money. The issue here is lordship. And Jesus is painting this picture. He says, listen, no one can serve two masters. It's not possible. You can't have two people who are in control of your life. You can't have two people that you respond to that you call Lord. And he says, you will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. And I think for probably all of us, we've experienced that tension in our walk as we live out our lives in this world, as we walk out our lives day by day. And we feel that tension of living in this world, doing the things that this world does, the pattern of this world, and surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. Remember last week we talked about the disciples laying down their nets, responding to Jesus, and, and he says, come follow me, and they dropped everything. They walked away from their professions and from their, from their income and, and from what was comfortable, and they followed, and they fully devoted themselves to him. We struggle. Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. So I remember when I first got to Bible college a number of years ago, one of the first classes that I was in was taught by an amazing woman of God named Barbara Middlebrook. And I remember as clear as it was yesterday, her standing up in front of the class and making this statement. We were in a theology class and she said to us, he is either Lord of all or not at all. He's either Lord of all or not at all. And I felt in that moment probably what you're feeling right now. I felt a heaviness. I felt maybe some guilt and some shame. And, and maybe you're even saying, right, great, Pastor Barry. Just, I just love a good guilt trip. Thanks for the guilt trip. Really appreciate it. But here's the thing. It's not the goal. The goal is not guilt. The goal is not a guilt trip. The goal here is a reality check because this is truth. We cannot serve two masters. That's what Jesus was saying. He's either Lord of all, or he's not our Lord at all. That we can't serve Jesus partly. That who he is, his awesomeness, his majesty, his authority, the fact that he is Adonai requires that we give him our full allegiance, our full devotion, our everything. You can't partly serve God. So the goal is not a guilt trip. The goal is a reality check, and we need that reality check. We need to be able to say, what is real? What is real? What matters? What are the things in life that matter the most? What has the greatest value? So you cannot serve 
God and money. That's what Jesus said. See, money is not the problem. And the focus here is not the money. Because you could insert anything. You cannot serve God and your job. You cannot serve God and other people. You cannot serve God and the culture. You cannot serve God and your hobbies. You cannot serve God and yourself. You cannot serve God and yourself. You can only have one master. And Jesus desires to have that place. See, the question is about what owns us. What is it that owns your heart? What has your heart? What has your affections? What has become that central thing in your life? See, because that space belongs to Jesus. That space belongs to Jesus. Jesus desires to be in that central place in your and my life. He must be Lord of all. He must be Lord of all. Not because he needs it. It's not that Jesus is going, oh, I sure hope they make me their Lord because I, otherwise I, I might not be Lord. I, it's, it's not like his kingdom is hanging in the balance based on whether or not we give our allegiance to him. It's not that God needs it. God's not wringing his hands. He does not become any less Lord if we don't surrender our lives to him. He is in the place of ultimate authority over this world. It's not that he needs it. We need it. You need it and I need it. We need Jesus. Because without him, we are lost. We are like a, a ship without a rudder in a storm. We are, we, are, we are off course. We are doing our own thing. We're here and we're there and we're up and we're down. And our lives are directionless. Our lives are meaningless. But with Jesus at the center... With Jesus in control, with Jesus as Lord, that we have purpose, that we have focus, that we have meaning, and that we are loved. Most importantly, that we are loved and we need him every moment of every day, in every situation, in every relationship, in every business dealing. We need Jesus to be at the center of our lives. I said in the, during the first message in this series, I made the statement that Jesus doesn't want to beat you into submission. He wants to love you into freedom. That his lordship is not about beating you down. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples, you see the rulers of this world. They take their authority and they lord it over people. They use their authority to beat people down. But Jesus said, this is not the way that this works in the kingdom. He says, not so with you. And by virtue of that saying it's not that way with him, is that he uses his lordship to serve, to be a blessing. See, Jesus doesn't want to beat you into submission. He wants to love you into freedom. And there's a tension that exists there for us because we live in this world. We live in a space that is broken. We live in a world that is fractured. We have relationships that aren't going well that have not gone well. We have things that our flesh desires and longs for that we have to deny and say, no, this is not what God has for me. We have visions of the future that we have to bring before the Lord and say, God, is this what you're calling me to? Is this what you're calling me to walk in? The tension is this, that there is a transcendence and an imminence 
to God. I've talked about this before, but it's worth mentioning again here that God is both transcendent, that he is Adonai, he is the Lord and overall, that he, his authority covers the whole earth, that everything is under his authority. But he's also imminent, that he is close. It's expressed in the life of Jesus, that Jesus would leave heaven to come to earth, to be with us, that he is an eminent God, that he is close to us. And that that tension for us is, worship, is where worship ex, is, is, is expressed. When I walk in, in the tension between Im, his imminence and his transcendence, see too far in either direction is not too good. See, if all I focus is, uh, on in is the transcendence of God, he becomes a tyrant who just wants to control my life. He's one just to, to be cowered to and, and, and feared in an unhealthy way. And if I go too far to the side of imminence, Jesus is just there when I need him. He's just my buddy. He's my pal. And I can just, I can just access him when it's convenient for him or when I'm in a crisis. Otherwise, I just live my life the way I want to. And Jesus, I just go to him when I have a need. And I fear that so much of our expression of Christianity in a Western culture is that we've really moved that needle towards the imminent side. And we understand the love and the grace and the mercy of God. But so often I think we move too far in that direction. And we have to remember that he is Lord. We live, let's be honest, we live in a culture that values freedom that values doing our own thing. It's one of the things in the United States that, that we put above everything else is we are free people. That I can go ever, wherever I want. I can do whatever I want. I can be whatever I want, except that we are under the lordship of Jesus, that we're under his authority. And so we have to walk in that tension. We have to remember that he is both transcendent and he is imminent. So how does Jesus invite us into this? How do we make sense of that? What does that look like in my walk with him? Well, Jesus addresses this in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. He says this starting in verse 1. Very truly I tell you, uh, tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters the gate uh, by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought them, brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. This beautiful image, this beautiful picture of Jesus as the shepherd, the great shepherd, the shepherd of our lives, the shepherd of our souls. He says this, that, that the sheep know the voice of the master, of the shepherd, and they follow his voice. He recognizes and he calls out that it's the, the thief who climbs over the fence to steal the sheep, but the one who comes through the gate the appropriate way is the shepherd. And the, shep the sheep will follow the shepherd. They have a relationship with the shepherd. See, this is the lordship of Jesus expressed through relationship. That his lordship and the tension of who he is as Adonai is reconciled in our relationship with Jesus. 
that Jesus came into the world so that we could know him, so that we could know him and therefore we could know the Father. This picture of sheep, this image of sheep would not have been lost to those in that culture, in that context. They understood, there were sheep everywhere. There were sheep all over the place. And they understand, understood the habits of sheep. And we talked about sheep in different messages about a year ago. In fact, I did a message on sheep and Jesus or God is our shepherd. You can go back and listen to that. But here's the thing. In this story, in this picture that Jesus paints, the sheep are still the sheep and the shepherd is still the shepherd. That's the transcendence of God. That the sheep are still sheep and the shepherd is still the shepherd. That, the, that, that Jesus doesn't become a sheep. That he, now he took on flesh and he became like us, but he, he still was the shepherd. He was the great shepherd. He is Adonai. And that we as sheep do not become God, that we stay sheep. The connection here is the voice. The connection is the relationship expressed through the voice of God speaking into our lives. And there's an intimacy where the shepherd, where Jesus says, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. And Jesus' clear invitation for us here, for all of us, is this, learn to know my voice. Respond to my voices. What Paul says in Romans 12, you will be able to discern what the will of God is. That is responding to his voice, knowing his voice. You see, for the sheep, there's a full trust relationship that exists. See, for a sheep, the world is full of danger. For a sheep, the world is full of danger. Sheep do not inherently have very much to protect them from predators. They, they, could, they could bite and they might be able to kick, but at the end of the day, they're, they're docile. And a wolf or some kind of animal coming against them or a thief would ultimately overpower a sheep. And so for sheep, the world is full of danger. And Jesus calls us sheep because he knows that this world is full of danger, that the enemy has set traps. In fact, it's here in John 10, uh, John chapter 10 and verse 10, where Jesus says that the goal of the enemy, that the thief comes to only steal, kill, and destroy. That is the enemy's goal, is to destroy the life of the sheep. And it was the job of the shepherd to care for the sheep, to feed them, to lead them, to protect them, to provide for them, to bring them rest. Jesus says, I am the shepherd. I am the shepherd. My sheep know my voice because he is our lord to know the voice of the shepherd is to discern the will of god to walk with him so my question for you today is this as we close what space does jesus occupy in your life what space does he occupy is he the lord is he at the center of everything you are and everything you do and every decision you make and every attitude and every thought and every, in everything, fill in the blank, is Jesus Lord of all? Is he Lord of all? Does your whole life belong to him, every part of who you are? Do you know his voice? Do you know the voice of Jesus? One of the ways that we can know the voice of Jesus is to read, to literally read the words that he spoke, the things that he said, 
to hear God's voice expressed through his word? Are you spending time in the word? Are you devoting yourself to learning to identify the voice of the Father, to hear the voice of the Son, to hear the voice of the Spirit? Do you know his voice? And do you follow? If you do, do you follow and respond to his voice? When he calls out, are you responsive? Or does that two-year-old come up inside of you and you go, nope, I want to do what I want to do. Jesus would beckon us and say, no, no, there's danger. Come into the fold. Come into a place of safety. Come under my covering. Do you know his voice? And I would ask this, are you under his authority? Are you under his authority? Or are you doing your own thing? Are you choosing to go your own way? Paul said that our true act of worship was to surrender our lives as a living sacrifice. And it's at that moment that we discern what his will, will is, what God has for us. So are you under his authority? Jesus' desire is to be at the center of your life. Would you invite him daily? Now, I understand you maybe have said yes, probably have said yes to Jesus. And have asked him, declared that he is Lord, and believed in your heart. But I know in my life it's a daily process of denying my flesh, surrendering my will, and saying, God, you be the Lord of my life. Jesus wants to be at the center. I want to invite you, if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never declared that he is your Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, I want to give you that opportunity today. If that's you, would you just pray this prayer with me right now? Don't, don't think about don't hesitate, but just reply and say yes to his invitation to you today. Say this, dear Jesus, I confess that you are Lord, that you are my Lord, and I believe in my heart that, that God raised you from the dead. I repent of my sin. I surrender my will. And I turn to follow you today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer today, would you let us know? We want to celebrate with you and we'd love to follow up with you to give you resources and help you along this journey. Church family, I want to pray over you now. Um, and I want to encourage you as you wrestle through this, as you walk through this over these next few days, take time. If you're watching with a group of people today, would you take some time today to talk about this, to, to unpack it a little bit more? But let's, let's pray, and I want to pray a blessing over you. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are Lord of all. I thank you that you are fully in control. You know every need. You know every circumstance. You know every detail of our lives. And in the midst of all of that, you love us. You love us with an extravagant love, and we receive that love today. But Lord, you also are the Lord of our lives. And so I ask in those places where we've gone astray, where we've done our own thing, God, that you would bring us back in line, that you would cause us to walk with you in obedience, to respond to you as our Lord, as our King, as our, as our Adonai. We submit to you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you as you go. Have an amazing week. We look forward to seeing you. Uh, next time, we'll be starting a new series entitled Made to Thrive. Look forward to having you a part of that. Invite someone to join you.